Good morning, church family. It's good to see you guys. Um, please turn in your Bibles to Acts 16. This week, our message is on the final verses of Acts chapter 16. I'm hoping you're all ready to be stretched this morning because there will be some, uh, not physical stretching, there will be, don't worry, there will be some, some mental, some spiritual, some emotional stretching this morning, I hope. So uh, as you follow along with your eyes, I'm going to go ahead and read through today's text. We're going to start at verse 25. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and now they throw us out secretly? No. No says, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and then they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Would you guys pray with me right quick? Father God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for this awesome story. Um, there's, there's so much kind of hidden here that you, you got to kind of mine out to see why it's, it's so neat. And uh, Lord, I, I just pray today as we look at, this, we look at this, this text that you will help us, Father, to understand the importance of protecting the witness of the church. Help us to understand uh, that this isn't just a, a vengeful thing or a petty thing. This is about keeping our testimony pure. And I pray for each person that's here today, Lord, that we will be receptive to your word and that we'll respond to it in a way that brings honor and glory to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, folks, if, if you're just tuning in, if you haven't you know, been, been here the last few months and kind of know what's going on, um, we're going to let the kids find these nine bingo pictures up here while, uh, while we kind of talk about what's happened, do a quick recap. Uh, in today's passage... The Apostle Paul has been on his second missionary journey, and he's been there with his crew, and that includes, uh, at the very least, it includes Silas and Timothy and, uh, and Luke, because he's the author of this book. He says we, so he's obviously with them uh, at a certain point. here. So, so they've had some great success so far with people responding to the gospel, and the group Uh, Paul and his crew, they'd been staying in the home of a woman whose name was Lydia, and she was a recent convert from Judaism. But the last day or so had been very eventful. You know, Paul drove a demon out of a girl. She'd previously uh, been exploited by her her owners or her handlers to make money, okay? And they were really angry with Paul because he obviously cost them money. And so they riled up a crowd. They kind of got him into a mob, and then they had Paul and Silas viciously beaten and thrown in jail. While they were praising God and praying in the jail, hopefully you guys remember this story, uh, God sent an earthquake, and it miraculously set them free. It opened the doors of the prison, it opened all the locks, it opened the stocks on their feet, the chains came off, so, which is a really weird earthquake, you know, <laughs> that's, that's pretty wild. And, and that's, that's what had just occurred uh, just the night before, but instead of leaving the prison, Paul and Silas waited and they waited for the jailer to show up, and they stopped him from committing suicide. He was ready to fall on his sword, right? And, and then they led him to Christ. And he and his whole family believed and were baptized. And then the jailer spent 
the next probably few hours caring for the apostles' wounds and, and preparing a meal for them. And then he apparently brought them voluntarily back to the jail to see what was going to happen next. And so this is roughly where we're jumping back into the story. It's the next morning after all this crazy stuff had just happened. But there's a really interesting plot twist here that I think we, we 21st century people probably didn't see coming. And we're going to get into those details uh, pretty soon. But this has a lot to do, folks, with protecting the witness of the church, which is the title of today's sermon. And so we're going to start again on verse 25, but I want to, we're going to do a little backtracking here uh, to help understand how we got to where we are and how some of the previous passages fit into today's theme. Okay, so we're going to look at verse 25, but when it was day, excuse me, verse 35, but when it was day, the magistrates, those were the city rulers, sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported those words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have since let you go. Therefore, come out now. Go in peace. This is a pretty weird thing, considering how differently uh, these town rulers were behaving from the previous day. You know, there was a riot the previous day. And the crowd beat Paul and Silas. Or actually, it was, it was people in authority, but the crowd dragged him before them. They beat Paul and Silas with rods, which was, it's, it's like a caning. You may remember about, it feels like 10 or 15 years ago, it was probably longer ago than that, when there was an American citizen that was defacing private property in another nation, and they basically assigned him the sentence of being caned, and that was a big deal here in America, because we're like, hey, you shouldn't do that to one of our citizens. Everybody kind of heard what that is. It's awful. It's getting beaten with uh, birch limbs off a tree is essentially what this is. And so, um, you know, that, that was a terrible thing. And it was just apparently with the blessing of this, these same magistrates, the ones who told the jailer to be sure that he then kept Paul and Silas safely under lock and key. Remember, they made a big deal about not letting them escape. So before we speculate on why their attitudes change, I want us to look at how the last 12 hours or so have already protected the witness of the church in a spectacular fashion, okay? As Christ himself showed, one of the most powerful testimonies that we can have is suffering well. Suffering well is a powerful testimony to the world. Anyone can suffer, right? And we all, we all have, or we are, or we will, or all of the above. It's not that we're strangers to suffering, but to suffer well, to praise God in the midst of suffering, not everybody does that. So to be chained up, you know, with your feet locked in between big pieces of wood and the stocks, and you're sitting on a, a stone floor in a dark, wet, cold cell, in severe pain from a vicious beating, if you are handling that like a champ, and you're praying and you're praising God, that's some pretty solid evidence that your faith is sound. There is something to what you believe. We've already seen that Paul and Silas, they, they've behaved in an honorable fashion, so God was glorified, even in the midst of this terrible, unjust treatment. But it's also important to note that Paul and Silas here are practicing what I'm going to call strategic civil disobedience. Strategic civil disobedience before they got locked up even. 
And you see, they pretty well had to in order to be obedient to their calling. Sometimes strategic civil disobedience is a requirement. And here's what I mean by that. According to Roman law, and if you, if you go, you can study this. You can look this stuff up. It's not, uh, it's not as arcane as you would think. Um, it, there was an emperor named Portius, or Portia, like, not like the car, but he, he, would, uh, he had this law that was very, very, it, it persisted for centuries. And Portian law dictated, this is back in the 6th century before Christ's birth, people in Roman colonies had to be tolerant of various religions. And they weren't supposed to prosecute people, excuse me, persecute people because of their faith. Okay? So, in other words, um, this is kind of ironic considering what happened later under Nero and the others. But at, at this time, religious tolerance was the law of the land. However, it was illegal to proselytize. So, if you're not familiar with what that means, uh, proselytizing means trying to convert someone from their faith to your faith. This is really hot. Can we, can we turn the mic down a little bit? It's really echoing. Thank you. Um, it wasn't legal to proselytize, at least, at least not overtly. If you were trying to convert people from their religion to yours, you were subject to penalty according to Roman law. Now, sadly, I think this may be the direction that our nation may go in our lifetime. Trying to teach the exclusivity of our faith may end up getting us banned under some kind of goofy hate speech law. But anyway, uh, under, under that rule, Paul and Silas may have had to break the law in order to proclaim Christ, and yet they just didn't let that stop them, did they? Now, why? Why did they keep preaching the gospel even if they weren't supposed to be proselytizing? Yeah, simply put, that's, you know, the Bible teaches. Preaching the good news about Christ, His deity, His atoning death, His resurrection, that's what gets people saved. And that's what we're commanded to do. And so, so Christians who understand this believe we are responsible for sharing Jesus with others. And I've never really been able to wrap my brain around the idea. Some people believe that a, a person's Christian faith is meant to be private, it's just between me and God. Well, guess what? That's not what the Bible teaches. Your faith is not just between you and God. Christians are called to live in community with other Christians, and proselytizing is part of that because that's how God builds His church. So the gospel must be preached, and maturing Christians ought to feel like we're under a divine mandate to do so. That's part of our job. It's part of our, our privilege and our obligation. And so because of this, in a situation where God's will is opposed to man's will or a law, we have a decision to make that's got a clear choice. You remember when the, the apostles first met opposition. You go back to Acts chapter 4. Peter said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And in the next chapter, he just flat out says it. You know, He says, we must obey God rather than men. So folks, proclaiming Christ, that's one of those things that we need to be brave enough to do even if there one day are legal consequences to that. It's already happened in a lot of countries as, as, as close. We spoke about this not that long ago in Canada. 
we've got to be vigilant and know that this may come. Peter and John did it. They suffered for it. Paul and Silas did it. They suffered for it. But see, what they did was right because they were obeying God rather than men. Anyway, so now they've been punished, but the magistrates are trying to release them. Why? We don't exactly know. What's that? PR? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's a sense in which that's the case. Um, it, it seems like they, they had other plans for the apostles originally and then changed their minds, right? Because they told them, make sure you, you keep them safe under lock and key. And then the next morning, like, eh, go ahead. You know, and maybe they'd learned from the earthquake, you know, that they'd figured they'd gotten on the wrong side of some God that they didn't know yet. It's quite possible. Or maybe they, maybe they thought about it. They're like, you know what? We allowed this mob, this crowd, to act with mob justice, and we shouldn't have done that. Maybe it was bothering their consciences. But either way, they've had a change of heart. And so they're offering the apostle, you know, here's a chance. Get out of town. You know, keep your heads down. Get on out of town. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison, and now they throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and get us out. Who is this Paul guy? <laughs> I mean, do you, do you know who he's talking to here? That, that word that's translated police is, is rabduchos in, in Greek, which I know it's, it's a weird name, but it, it means rod holders. So these are probably the dudes that had just flogged them the day before. And they're saying, all right, guys, it's time to leave. And Paul's like, no. What in the world is happening here? I mean, is Paul just being difficult? This is where it gets pretty interesting, I think, because the fact is, this was Paul's way to protest the injustice of what had occurred the day before, because nearly, nearly everything that happened to them the day before was morally wrong, as well as totally illegal. I mean, we talked about how the owners of the demon-possessed slave girl had been, they'd been angry with Paul for messing up their meal ticket, right? But, but does anyone remember what those men, those, the handlers of that slave girl, do you remember what they said to get the crowd upset? Anybody? There were two things that they said. One, these guys are Jews. Well, that's hardly illegal, but they were banking on the prejudice of the crowd because this was a Gentile city. And two, they said, they're teaching and advocating customs that go against the law. And since at least that accusation to some degree was true, they, they had a legal reason to get the authorities involved, but, but from all appearances, the authorities just had them beaten and thrown in jail without giving them any chance at all to defend themselves. I mean, even a small child could tell you that is unfair. You shouldn't be punished before you get a chance to say your side of things. And we know not only from Paul's example, but also from the example of Christ himself. You remember this, when he was slapped by the high priest, which was illegal, and he called him out? It's perfectly acceptable for a Christian to protest injustice and say, what is happening here is wrong. And I recently mentioned uh, from the pulpit that the Biden administration put out an executive order that states that doctors in states where elective abortion is legal must be required to perform them. 
I am not ashamed to say that this order is absolutely vile. It is wicked. And it is a violation of that doctor's legal and moral right to obey his or her conscience. And this kind of bleed, it pours into the reason that Paul, I think, was correctly practicing strategic civil disobedience, which was that his civil rights had also been grievously violated. And he believed they ought to be preserved. It was illegal in Rome to bind a Roman citizen without a trial. And it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen without them having been at trial and sentenced. And Paul's legal rights had just been pretty egregiously violated, and he wasn't just going to slink away, you know, meekly. And I think he was right in this. I think every Christian should also learn what our legal rights are too and then work to protect them for the sake of our Christian witness, both for our ability to witness and also for the credibility of our witness. Those are both very important. And here's what I mean. If we apply these these things here, if, if, we, if we take this and put it in our own circumstance, it would mean knowing things such as we have the freedom of religion and of peaceful assembly in this country. And if the government decided to say, you know, use a pandemic to keep us from assembling longer than we deem necessary, we have the legal prerogative to disobey that rule and to meet together and to worship as the Lord says to do. For future reference, I said it. Now, if people start pointing fingers and they start saying, you know, well, this is a bad witness. You're refusing to toe the line. You're, you're being a bad witness. By knowing our legal rights, we can point out that the law enforcers are trying to break the very law that also constrains them. And it prevents us from earning a reputation as being rebellious, or at least hypothetically it prevents us from that. There are some people that are always going to say that it's wrong no matter what. Of course, in places where the government is hostile to Christianity actively and it's not part of their legal protection, the whole church may be underground there, such as in uh, Red China. I know it's, we're not supposed to say Red China anymore, but Communist China. But you can still, as long as the law can work in your favor, you need to learn how. I mean, Paul did. And you know, in the past, before I was really studying for this, I always thought Paul was just kind of being salty here, you know? Like he was just refusing to obey the magistrates. But it's way more than that. Reading commentaries on this passage helped me to, to have a wider view of this situation. He was concerned about protecting his witness as a Christian. I want you to think about this, okay? As of that moment, a whole lot of people knew that Paul and Silas had been publicly beaten and thrown in prison, and they probably wondered, what's all the fuss about? Because you guys know how rumors get around, right? If you don't know something, what do you do? It's, it's human nature. You should ask, right? That's what you should do. <laughs> what human nature is, is, is if you don't know, you assume the worst a lot of times. And so if things if they had let things go in the direction that it was headed, there might have always been lies circulating about the apostles and why they were beaten. And that might have thrown shade at the church. It might have made the church look bad. 
And Paul wasn't about to let that happen. He knew that he and Silas had been mistreated and they weren't going to let people think that they had done something wicked to deserve it. So by demanding that the rulers come themselves and set them free, it was a way of clearing their names. And so by proxy, clearing the faith, Christianity, of any wrongdoing. But there was even more to it than that. Paul and Silas were also protecting the witness of the church by setting an example in at least three additional ways here, okay? We're going to talk about them briefly because they all show an attitude and a behavior pattern that is, is good for Christians to imitate so that, so that we can safeguard our own, our own witness, the integrity of our witness, and safeguard the church by dictating that the magistrates come and let them out themselves, Paul was forcing them to be accountable to their mistake, at least to some degree. Now, we see that their accountability was not to the extent that it legally could have been, and we'll talk about that shortly. But as it was, Paul wasn't willing to simply skip town. He and Silas had been publicly humiliated, and as such the reputation of the gospel had potentially been marred. And he wanted for Silas and himself to be fully exonerated in the eyes of anyone who happened to be paying attention. And so Paul was showing that far from being a whipped puppy, he was actually the one calling the shots here because he had a right to. His legal citizenship had been ignored, and that was not only a violation of his own rights, but that was a smear on Rome. Because justice had been neglected in a very high-profile setting. So hopefully it's clear by this point that Paul had a purpose behind what he was doing here. I mean, clearly there's a legitimate reason to be upset, but his goal was not revenge, as we'll see. Reading on. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came out and apologized to them. We're sorry. They're hoping for some, some placation there because it could have gone really bad for them. And they took them out and they asked them, not, not ordered them, they asked them to leave the city. Now, why were the magistrates afraid? They were afraid because what they had just done to Paul was punishable by law. And at the very least, it meant that they would have to pay a fine for detaining him. He was a free Roman citizen. They should not have detained him at all. By the way, we think of, of jail and prison now as a punitive thing. That's not how it was in those days. You were held in prison just long enough for them to decide what to do with you. Then you either paid a fine, you got whooped real bad, or they killed you. Sometimes you were exiled. So it was illegal to bind them, and so they were afraid they would have had to pay a large fine for that. Now, likely, the punishment for having Paul and Silas, who were Roman citizens, beaten without a trial was... A trial was probably a lot worse than just a fine. So it's easy to under... I tried to look that up, by the way. I couldn't find it. So I don't know what the punishment would have been, but I'll bet it was worse. Um, it's easy to understand why the magistrates were a lot more humble in the way that they responded to Paul and Silas, at least compared to the day before, right? I mean, they were apologetic, maybe even sincerely. It may not have been just out of fear. Maybe they had a strong conscience and they realized they'd done something really wrong. But 
Either way, they're really anxious at this point for Paul and Silas to leave town. And it's worth noting that Paul could have made a much bigger deal out of this than he did. But instead, he and Silas chose to forgive the offenses against them. Allowing these these magistrates to apologize for an honest, though terrible, mistake. But it was as long as they were willing to admit it, right? And, And to admit they'd done wrong and publicly... By coming to let them out themselves, they were showing publicly, because the punishment was public, the exoneration must be public, to show that the apostles were innocent of any wrongdoing. But even more than that, Paul and Silas chose to forego the satisfaction of seeing these magistrates punished for having them illegally tortured and imprisoned. Now, you got to look at those two things in balance. They were forcing accountability but they're also forgiving and foregoing. This was, I believe, a beautiful example of the Christian virtue of forgiveness in its truest sense. And to, to read this, you know, this story, this gives Paul a ton of credibility. You know, when he later wrote Romans 12, you're You're probably familiar with Romans 12, 1 and 2 at least, but there's so much good stuff in there. He writes, Repay no one, evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. You see, it's it's never in the best interests of the gospel to seek revenge when we're wrong. When we are wronged, I didn't say that loud enough, when we're wronged. It might not even be best to seek restitution sometimes. And I know that that's a tough pill to swallow, right? But it does have biblical precedent. So rather than seeking vengeance, Paul goes on, to the contrary, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. I love that. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is a great example of that, isn't it? And that's exactly what happened here. By by not taking revenge, Paul and Silas took control of the situation because these magistrates, they must have realized they were receiving mercy. And they knew it. They knew they owed Paul and Silas big time. And who knows, maybe, maybe these city rulers would pay closer attention to that message that Paul and Silas had been preaching because their response to being unjustly beaten and imprisoned was way different from what a typical worldly person's response would have been. That's the witness of a Christian. Behaving that way protects the witness of the church if we are going to preach about the grace and mercy of God in Christ, then we should live it out. All right, one more way in which these men give us a positive example is in the last verse. It says, so they went out of prison and visited Lydia. Of course, of course they're going to visit her. She was, she was the person whose hospitality they had been relying on during their stay for several days at this point. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, excuse me, they encouraged them and departed. So they also checked in on the rest of the Christians in town, right, before they left. And as always, they encouraged them. 
You ever notice how often it says Paul and his buddies encouraged people? I think that's pretty cool. You know, I hope when you come to, to, to worship here that I, I know sometimes I'm a little fire and brimstony because so is the Bible, but I hope you never leave here feeling beat down. I hope you leave here feeling convicted and feeling encouraged to live according to God's grace that's at work in each of us. Anyway, we shouldn't expect any less from Paul. He was always really big on encouraging other believers. And I think even by sharing the, the stories of his suffering, he encouraged them. And you'd think, I mean, it's counterintuitive. Like you'd think, well, that doesn't seem like that would make you want to stand firm in your faith. But it does. To hear about somebody who suffered and who suffered well, that's encouraging to us. It encourages us to suffer well. So anyway, after taking their time to tie up loose ends, Paul and Silas forged ahead. They didn't just sit around moping and moaning. No, they continued on their mission. And that is a great example for us. When it comes to, to protecting the witness of the faith, simply being faithful to continue is a big part of that. Some of you probably feel like you've been burned by another professing Christian or by a church or by a denomination and it makes you want to pull back from your involvement in, in fellowship or in serving the Lord. And some of you may be disappointed with God for allowing a, a difficult time or a, a tough circumstance in your life and you feel like maybe He doesn't care so much. And some of you may have despaired over your own failures and it it seems like God is far away and it's tempting to quit. And it may also be tempting, you know, to, for the, the more chronologically advanced saints in here to, to sort of rest on your laurels and say, you know, well, I've served God for a long time, but I'm ready to hang it up. Listen, friends, if you are still on this side of the dirt, you're not done. God is not finished with you. Your time is not over to serve the Lord. Forge ahead. Continue your mission. Continue in the great co-mission with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not done because He's not done with us. Okay, very quickly, I've got some final takeaways. Uh, these are just some additional broad considerations for, Christ for Christians uh, and for people that are wanting to do what God wants us to do. It seems like it seems like inevitably when the subject comes up of saying no to the powers that be, somebody is going to throw out Romans 13, 1 through 7. Like it's the trump card to squash any idea of standing up to authority. And to be fair, it kind of reads that way. I don't want to encourage you. I, I should have looked up the date. I preached on Romans 13 a while back in the midst of the pandemic stuff. Um, you can go back and take a look at that if you'd like or take a listen to that. But here, here's the beginning of that chapter. I want us to talk about this very quickly. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Now that line right there, something that should kind of give you an idea of what Paul is referring to here, okay? That's an important concept. Subjection to authority is very important. It's absolutely in the Bible. We definitely need to pay attention to it. At the same time, let's keep it into proper, the context that it's written. And remember, the phrase is be subject 
to the governing authorities, not blindly obey the governing authorities. Clearly, blind obedience is how we get concentration camps. Okay? So be careful with that. God is always to be obeyed above man when the two are, are, are not coinciding, when they're contradicting. We need to obey God. And in situation, this is important. I want you to hear this. And not every Christian is going to agree with me on this, and that's okay. I believe this. In situations where the authorities have a higher legal authority that they are disregarding, there may be reason for strategic civil disobedience. In general, though, it's true that we are supposed to be in subjection. In other words, to place ourselves under the authority of the government. That's the word is, is hupotasso in Greek. It means to place oneself beneath. Okay? So even when we practice civil disobedience strategically, we must also do it respectfully. And Peter gives us a little more insight in his letter to the churches. He says, be subject, there's that phrase again, for the Lord's sake... I like that. For the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. What, why is this important? He tells us, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, he says, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You can look, look, oh, that's a good reason, Right? He's telling us that living in subjection to our rulers will silence the ignorance of foolish people. Oh my, doesn't that sound great? <laughs> so we have a job to do. We must be subject for the sake of silencing the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, he goes on to say, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That's very similar to Galatians. I want to say it's Galatians 5, where Paul talks about don't use your freedom you know, to, to sin. He says use it to serve in love. So Christians, we are to live freely. But the point of that freedom, it's not to do whatever we want. It's freedom to live in God's will and to serve Him as He wants and to serve others as He wants. That's our freedom. You say, well, i got freedom as American. Let me tell you something. Your freedom as an American is underneath your freedom in Christ. There are things you're free to do in this country that God will not allow. You understand that? Okay. It's freedom to live in God's will. We have this great privilege in this country especially, as well as being Christians, but we ought not to waste that freedom by, by, by catering to ourselves, to our own desires, when we could be serving God. We could honor Him with our lives. That's super important. Another consideration for Christians is that we must be willing to pray for our leaders regularly, whether they deserve our respect or not. You know, we should pray not just for our own leaders, we should pray for other people's leaders as well. I mean, it's literally commanded in Scripture. You know, 1 Timothy, Paul wrote, I urge, he says, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he specifies. He's, he's being very particular right here. He says, all people. And then he says, for kings 
and all who are in you know, high, high places or high positions. Why? He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So praying for our leaders doesn't just benefit them, it benefits us. And he says this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You know, when I was, I was thinking about this sermon, this thought came to me, and if you're on Facebook, you probably saw it because I posted it. So if we prayed for our leaders as often as we criticized them, perhaps God would change their hearts. That's pretty much what this passage is getting at here in 1 Timothy. I mean, who, who knows? Maybe God will open the eyes, the spiritual eyes of the President of the United States that he will see God's will and repent. It's possible. Be praying for Joseph Robinette Biden. I'm not joking. Pray for him. He needs our prayers. He needs the Lord to change his heart. It's definitely worth asking God for, don't you think? Yeah. And, and finally, as this passage points out, it's a good thing to live in peace as you're able. You know, the absence of stress is a pretty good way to live, right? at least the absence of unnecessary stress. Praying for our leaders can help with that. You know, as, as we read earlier from Romans 12, we are commanded by God through the Apostle Paul to live in peace with others. And then he says, as much as it depends on who? On them? No, as much as it depends on who? Us, on, on you, on me. Live in peace with others as much as it depends on you, we can't force others to feel at peace with us, but we can do everything in our power to be at peace with them. Because after all, God made a perfect path to peace with us through his son, Jesus. Of course, you know, the only way to receive that peace with God is by receiving Jesus through faith. And maybe this morning you're realizing that, you know, you've never placed your trust in Jesus. And if you haven't, then you're not at peace with God. And you need that first before any of this other stuff. Before you can be a vessel of peace, you have to be at peace with God. More importantly, apart from trusting Christ, you're not yet an heir to eternal life. So today might be that day for you to be at peace with God. Trust Him and confess your faith and be baptized today. But if you're already in Christ, you know, you may also recognize you've not been protecting the witness of the church. Maybe your life is marked more by complaining than joy or by thoughts of vengeance rather than forgiveness. Perhaps you're experiencing or causing more strife than peace. Maybe you've just given up or strayed or, or you, you realize, I need to return to the shepherd of my soul. Well, you have that chance today, too, 